Welcome to the ESG Matters podcast. My name is Amat Gomis, and I'm your host. Today, we have Dr. Daniel Fitzgerald. Daniel is responsible for identifying, defining, and facilitating strategies and action plans associated with improving the sustainable performance of products at Stanley Black & Decker. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Well, the first question I have, you know, I know we have talked in the past about the circular economy on this podcast. And one of the things that really drew me to to you as a guest was to talk about how you all are leveraging circular economy in, in the work that you're doing. So understandably, circular economy is a fairly new concept. Can you explain what it means for the work you're doing at Stanley Black & Decker? Absolutely. So uh, here at Stanley Black & Decker, we make a lot of physical goods. I think most of your listeners are probably most familiar with our power tools and accessories business with brands such as DeWalt, Stanley, Black & Decker, Craftsman, Porter Cable, and Bostitch. And with those physical materials really drives the strategy for circularity because in a nutshell, circularity is keeping these materials in use as long as possible. So a little bit more specifically for us, it means, you know, when we're thinking about products, we want to select materials that have an opportunity to live a second life. And then once we've done that, we don't want to make design decisions that would prevent those materials from reaching recyclability. And that would be sort of using glues and adhesives and different ways in which, you know, sometimes joining things together can limit recyclability. And then last but not least, you know, you need a means for return if that doesn't exist already in the market you're selling into. So those are some ways in which we are, you know, focusing on circular economy. Thank you for that. So thinking about that, there's so many ways to start implementing circular design principles. Can you discuss how you started and what was the rationale for, for that a little bit more in depth? You, you talked about it a little bit, but if you could do go a little bit more in depth, that'd be great. Sure. Yeah. So, so I think the easiest way to get started is, is really to analyze, you know, your business and what materials are you using, you know, and if you reference back to the Ellen MacArthur graphic, which is a pretty popular way to describe circular economy, there's, there's two sides to that. You have the technical side, which are non-biological materials. And then the other side, which is biological materials, which is more for food and, and cotton for clothing and different things like that. So we, we've got obviously materials from both sides, but we're heavily, heavily dominated on the non-biological side, metals and, and other such materials. And so a good way, you know, to get started is, you know, what we want to use better materials, right? That's sort of the general mandate. But what does that mean specifically? And so to us, it means higher levels of recycled content, in one area for the non-biological materials, because that means there is already a means for recycling if you can purchase recycled content, right? So the system exists for it to, to live a second life if you're using it. So, so I think that's really a powerful first step is, is specifying higher levels of recycled content. And secondarily, if you're on the bio side, it, it's really utilizing more uh, rapidly renewable materials, which is defined as a material that can replenish itself within 10 years, and so some recent launches that we, you know, had that, that incorporate these principles, you know, first we have our Reviva tool line, which launched last October with 50% recycled content in the enclosures and other sustainable features. And then on the 
bio side, we launch, uh, we're launching some bio-based lubricants, you know, our biggest one being bio-based bar and chain oil for use in our chainsaws. Uh, so those are specific exa- examples of ways in which we're trying to modify products to adopt more circularity. And that's really interesting. I think when we think about circular economy, think about the circularity principles, what I've heard from other folks has been that it's nice to have, it's kind of recycling 2.0 in many people's minds, but they're having a hard time implementing it. And what I'm hearing what you've done is like you've started to implement it in really organic ways for the work that you're doing. And you really looked at how can your business both meet the demands of circular economy principles, but also how does that improve your service offering? What does that mean for your value chain? So that that's a really interesting component that I think a lot of times for people who are also thinking about implementing this, is that that's another way to look at it. It's not just a pure this is good just for the environment, but what does this mean for the value chain? Is there a way that this could be a key differentiator for the products that are out there? And is there a natural starting point where this could be really implemented? Right, exactly. So you've talked about the different products that you've launched that have these circular principles embedded into the process. What has been the most challenging part of the process of implementing this? Has it been you know, getting buy-in from executives? Has it been finding and sourcing the right material? So I'm curious from a practitioner point of view, what has been the, the hardest part of the process so far? Sure. I think there's two answers to this question that, that I've seen. So I'm going to start with the more ground level answer of, you know, what have the difficulties been within Stanley Black & Decker and likely what, what other company, you know, other folks trying to do this are probably experiencing directly. And then I think, you know, there's something I've kind of noticed about the macro view of what circular economy looks like that I think is is contributing a little bit to the challenges and, and the slowness of adoption. So I'll start with internally, I think with every business, obviously, you know, taking on increased cost to do something, right, it is always a difficult discussion. And usually you can take on additional cost if it delivers additional functionality that the end user is willing to pay for. And so I think, you know, from a pure sustainability perspective, you know, even though there's a lot of good market research out there on consumers willing to pay more and the younger generations being more interested, a lot of that research is really heavily focused on fast moving consumer goods. And the thing about them is they're a little more intimate to your day to day, right? You know, they could be clothing that that you're wearing physically on your skin or makeup that you're putting on your skin or things that, you know, your kids are eating, right? So I feel like sustainability's first wave, you know, really went through that because because it's it's you know closer to people. And when you think about power tools and equipment and you know things that you're not as in close contact with every day, it doesn't live in your house. Sometimes it lives in your garage, right? It may not be top of mind to, to be saying, you know, I need to make sure that that this is good for me and my family and this and that, right? So I, I feel like, you know, in our industry, at least, there's a little bit of, you know, concern about do people buying these products really care about it, which, again, it's hard to ask someone to add a feature if it doesn't provide any value to the person paying for it. So one of the ways in which we've been trying to, to work through that a bit is, 
you know, a lot of these new solutions, right, also uh, tend to have, you know, some type of interesting performance upgrade, right? Either it makes the product more durable, or maybe there's better chemical resistance or, or other things. So what we've really been trying to do with this is find instances where taking on the new material is not just matching the material performance from before, but actually adding a little bit extra in the area of value, which the consumers used to paying for durability, longevity, other stuff. Right. And then with that, we get the sustainability attribute, which becomes like the cherry on top that makes, makes you say, okay, I want to buy the better product. And maybe it's a little more than I want to spend, but knowing that it's good for the environment that helps get me over the hump. Right. And, and so that's really where I think the sweet point is in finding ways to incorporate this stuff while also, you know, getting the end users, you know, to buy in. And, and spend a little bit more for the product. There's very rarely an instance where you can find, you know, the better sustainable solution that's cost equivalent or cheaper. So again, it's it's a hump you got to get over. And these material manufacturers are innovating, right? And every business wants to be paid for their innovation. So I don't think it's a fair stance to, you know, be saying, hey, we need these materials more sustainable and they need to act the same and be the same cost, right? So Sorry, I was just going to say that kind of goes against the whole idea of like what we've seen, regardless of sustainability, just when there's a new thing out there, right? You have to have economies of scale and then you have more competitors into the marketplace. And that's what really starts to drive down cost. Right. But it's not that's that's not the case. And I, I think you make a really good point, too, when you're saying, you know, you're couching this idea of circularity, sort of encompassing it in things that people are used to understanding in a way that they can that motivates them to pay a higher premium and tacking that onto whether it be better efficiency, stronger, more innovative products in some way, shape that addresses the consumer's demand. I think that's really interesting because oftentimes in this field, you know, a lot of people, we, we can't see the forest from the tree sometimes. Mm-hmm. And there's a great opportunity to say, when we're talking about the circular economy, there's so many great opportunities, but you have to then educate the consumer on what this means, educate them on the value it brings, educate them on a whole litany of things in a very short period of time when it's like, is that really the best use of your time? Because trying to convert that many people into this new thing as one company is going to be almost a fool's errand. But if you are able to say, when we launch a new product, we start to embed this innovation in here and through decreasing decreasing virgin product use, you're improving these things that people are used to. You're now getting people to understand the value of what this means for them in a tangible way. And I think for those maybe in more service-related fields, products as a service, you know, renting it instead of purchasing it outright may be a way to help decrease the cost that people are sometimes really hammered by mm-hmm. and saying, you know, in a recessionary period, instead of buying whatever thing that you're selling, this may be an opportunity for you to get the high quality that you want and leasing it as you would a car, right? And then right. we take care of the upgrades or wherever long for however long the term of the contract is. So I think that there's a great opportunity here for companies to couch this in how you've done Stanley Black & Decker and say, when we're launching a product, this is what it means for the consumer. The consumer cares about X, Y, Z. This is how we're talking about it. So I, I think that's a really, really strong point that people who are 
in a position maybe more nascent in their journey of incorporating circularity into their business model or into products may really want to sort of tack on. Where do you think the adoption of circularity principles will be in the next five years? So I believe that governments are going to start stepping in essentially and and attaching prices to sustainability. And, And we're already starting to see that a bit with packaging specifically, right? So, so that's a set of materials that's, you know, shorter lived, right? You know, they need to survive to get the product safely to its final use, right? And then typically it's not needed anymore. So it gets a lot of attention, uh, rightfully so, because sometimes it's designed as if it is going to last forever when it doesn't need to. So, but these states are essentially, so, so what's happening is they're, you know, they're saying you have to report you know, how much you're selling each type of material of packaging, and then the different material types have different prices, right? And essentially the ones that are problematic and non-recyclable are going to carry higher price tags. And so at the end of the day, right, if, if in theory, <laughs> all of, you know, this impact and non-recyclability stuff has higher cost, right, it'll just become a cost reduction exercise within business, which they're good at, right? But right now, to me, there's a little bit of, there's some time now where we we kind of know this is coming. We just don't know the final exact format. And really, this is the time to you know, find where your suppliers are going to be, figure out these solutions, get everything, you know, taken care of before the laws come out. Because, you know, in my opinion, once the, the ink on the policy paper dries, I mean, the market's going to adjust, you're going to understand what the incentives are and, and this and that. It's almost like what exactly happened right after the this new bill, the Inflation Reduction Act passed, right? And all those credits were in there. So I'm assuming a lot of providers changed their prices, taking into account federal rebates and different things. So I do believe that ultimately, though, this will become a regulatory thing at some point, and then it'll just be ultimately following laws and reducing costs associated with not having things that aren't ideal for a circular and sustainable economy. I agree with you. I think probably we'll start in Europe first, Mm -hmm. and then it will come through the United States probably in the latter part. And then there's going to be this idea of how do we leapfrog with the EU's done. And I think for companies and even service providers, it makes a lot more sense to your point for them to start this process now, because if you do, you understand what's happening, you understand what are the gaps, and then you can have a much more informed decision with lawmakers to say, this is how you should craft this legislation, right? Because we, that you'll, you'll be able to provide the guidance to say, as someone who's done this, as a company or a corporation that's done this, these are the sticky points that, we, that are hard to overcome. If you want wider adoption, you're going to have to work with strategic suppliers to secure this act, secure these resources, or you're going to have to provide some type of subsidy so that the lower middle market and middle market entities that are the strategic suppliers can build this ability into their structure because they currently don't have it. And I think when you, when we're also thinking about legislation, part of me is seeing just generally that we may see this on a state by state level first and how they decide what products they'll they'll purchase. And then we may see a federal one after that, if that makes sense. Right. No, for sure. When multiple states start getting laws and they're not (laughs) in harmonization with each other, then then the push for federal harmonization comes because it's, it's difficult to 
report 50 different ways, right? <laughs> yep. Um, so. And we're seeing that in other sort of ESG related regulations and, and laws where it's not just the 50 states, some, some cities are doing it. And you're right. just like, how can any company that has multiple locations, it's going to be a really tough thing that I think eventually the federal government, regardless of who's in the White House or who controls the legislative branch, they're going to have to need some type of consensus because it's just too, it's going to be too much for any, any one group to, to really manage. Yeah. So one, one other thing that, that I think is interesting about just the nature of what business is today and how there's a natural, I think, struggle from moving to a circular economy is, you know, if you think about the linear economy that, you know, the material flow is one way, you know, from extraction, manufacturing, assembly, right? But on each step of that supply chain, right, the two actors involved in the transaction sort of have a fair transaction, right? You pay for the material, you send money, they send material, right? And then each step kind of has that fair transaction between two partners all the way, you know, to, to the end user. And then the final transaction is disposal in some way, shape or form, which isn't a financial transaction, but maybe a moral one if you're throwing away recyclable stuff for different things, right? You have to make a choice. In the circular economy, right, there becomes this new aspect of you've got to create or, or set up some process where you don't know, you know, in general, it's good for your business and, and good for everything and that it, it it's positive, but you can't exactly quantify the good. And, and so I'll give an example of what I mean there is, you know, I said earlier in this podcast that, you know, providing a means for return, if none exists, is, is a part of circularity. And so, you know, in Europe, you know, they have the WE directive, which requires the return of power tools. And, and that's been law or directive since 2006. But in North America, there is only one province, British Columbia, that uh, regulates, you know, and requires a system for return of power tools. Everywhere else across North America, you know, that there's no requirement. And so, you know, we, we sort of said internally as that, you know, if, if we care about circular design and we're going to push it, we, we have to have a means for these products to be returned. And so we last year set up a partnership with TerraCycle where end users can go online and print out a free return shipping item and return power tools from us through TerraCycle. Now, you know, we fund that and we know that getting those tools back and making sure they find another spot in the market is important and positive. But, you know, all we know is generally that that's going to be available. And hopefully when we go to spec recycle content, right, that us providing this recycling is delivering some of that material back. But a traditional transaction would say, well, how do we know? Like, how can we get that directly back? And this and that, if we're, you know, and I think the spirit of circularity has to be that you have to be able to go one way on a transaction and know that the Ben, you know, have a leap of faith, essentially, that the benefits are going to boomerang around at some point, right? And I think that's hard for businesses that are very much used to one-to-one exchanges, right? <laughs> so, so that, you know, unless we can, you know, I think there, there are cool solutions out there like blockchain and other things that, that can help show those connections eventually. But you know, in the short term, we're going to have to, you know, trust, trust that this is the right way to go and, and do things. Yeah, I think that's something we've also seen with other sort of aspects in ESG, whether it be decarbonization, where there's this first like, no one really understands it. It's kind of amorphous. And then there's beginning to be a few sort of NGOs who, who kind of like focus on this. They get one or two adopters, early adopters who are able to show that this is doable. And then you spend the next 
few sort of cycles trying to convince middle management and upper middle management on the value of this and how this can help you as a corporation and why this is important. And then there starts to be built a chorus of resources and methodologies and tools that people can create, that people created to help usher this along. And I think with circularity, we're really in the beginning stages of that, where there is a need to have more resources and tools that people can freely use to sort of explain how to do this, showcase studies about how this has worked, and what this kind of looks like from a business value generation perspective. Um, are you mitigating risk by doing this, or are you improving revenue operations? So I, I can see companies sort of struggling with circularity for the next year or so, but then there's going to be like this exponential growth in the next three to five years where everyone will be uh, scrambling for talent who know how to do this and, and trying to create something or how they can embed this into their own products or services. Mm -hmm. So with that, how would you advise others who are starting this process of incorporating circular design principles into their products or service offering? What would you advise them to do? So I know I've, I've referenced this before, but I always like to ground myself and, and come back to the top level and, and think about what is the purpose of circularity at the end of the day? And I go back to the Ellen MacArthur charts. It is maintaining materials at the highest value you can using renewable energy, right? So that, that kind of takes out the question of, you know, hey, it, it uses more energy to recycle this than just pulling out virgin. Well, at the end of the day, we're going to have energy figured out and have it be non-harmful to use energy. So let's prioritize materials. So that's sort of the first thing you got to ground yourself in. It, it's a materials question. And then if you're on the, the non-biological side, I mean, the best path is obviously the shared model, re, you know, reuse, maximize utilization. But that's really the hardest to do when you think about how business is currently done to where that needs to get to. So really, the, the quickest step is that outer loop to, to try to figure out and make things recyclable, which is sort of what I was explaining earlier, that that sort of is our first step into it as well. But, you know, you, you sort of go from there to, you know, once the systems to collect the tools are a little more formal and and the volumes coming through then there's a potential to look at sort of remanufacture obviously you know right to repair is a big issue the, the next one's really repair right making sure we have service manuals out making sure we make things available for users you know incorporating strategic ideas like platforming so as we're required to hold more components for repair if they're shared across many catalog numbers, the likelihood of it being used goes higher and having to hold so many diff different pieces of inventory goes down as well. So, you know, getting smarter with your product design to understand the need for circularity and reuse kind of leads you towards some platforming type thinking. And then, you know, the last but not least is the shared business model. And um, we are planning on doing that with respect to are outdoor commercial ride airs where you know, they will use five batteries inside of them and, and each of them range up to 3,000 kilowatt hours. So you're talking about 15 kilowatt hours when in comparison to a Tesla, a Model 3 is about 75, right? So that's a lot of battery and we know batteries are expensive and, and one of the hardest parts of conversion, right? So to get commercial landscaping over, right, it might require 
you know, require this energy as a service model. You don't actually own the batteries, but but they're rented such that it's easier to get yourself into these new pieces of equipment sooner and without having to pay the cost of the battery. So I think potentially, right, you know, the cost disparities, those particular issues might be a prime spot for, you know, renting, right? And I think you had mentioned that earlier in this, in this yeah. uh, talk as well. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think that's a great amount of information that I think folks who are listening can start to implement and take back into their organization to start their own journey towards improving the circular economy or starting the circular economy process within their own organization. So I want to thank you so much for taking time out today to talk with us at the ESG Matters podcast, Dan, and I, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much. Really appreciate being invited on and hope you have a nice day as well. Take care.